Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Hey, hey, welcome in. It's Downtown, the podcast. That is absolutely right. Episode number 235. Rich Kimball and Carrie Haskell here with you. And brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We've got a couple of fine conversations for you this week. Coming up in the second half, we talk with Boston-based sports writer Christopher Price. His new book on the Hartford Whalers is such a fun read. It's called Bleeding Green. We'll hear all about that a little bit later on. Up first, a frequent visitor to both the podcast and our downtown radio show. We're talking about actor and television host, the multi-talented John O'Hurley, who returns again this Thanksgiving along with David Fry for the 21st consecutive year of broadcasting the National Dog Show presented by Purina. We had a chance chance to uh, catch up with John again, talk about this year's show and more here on Downtown. Hello there, John. How are you this morning? Anytime I see Maine come up in the... uh... (laughs) <laughs> in the identifier there. I'm a happy guy. Well, we're glad to hear that. Thank you so much for being with us today, as always. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. You know, we were going back through the archives, and as best we can tell, this is the 27th time you've been on our show. We're, we're so grateful for your uh, generosity with your time through all the years. <laughs> well, I actually, yeah, it's funny. I think you've become as much of a tradition in, uh, in, in my life as uh, the show has become Well, it is a remarkable tradition. 21st year of uh, you and David Fry bringing us the wonderful National Dog Show presented by Purina. The ratings numbers are phenomenal. Is there is there any program other than the Super Bowl that does as well in the ratings as this event? Well, we're we're certainly the number one uh, show on NBC. We beat the Olympics. How about that? And that's and in many cases we beat football on uh, on uh, uh, Thanksgiving as well. Uh, but uh, that's because we love our dogs. And uh, once again, you know, we're back to uh, pre-pandemic uh, presentations. We're, we, we have a record number of tickets sold this year, so we're going to have a record number of people there in, uh, in, uh, outside of Philadelphia where we actually shoot the show with this, the Kennel Club of Philadelphia hosts the, uh, the National Dog Show presented by Purina. So we, uh, we always enjoy our relationship with them. And uh, there are, what, some 2,000 dogs that uh, begin this competition? We do, yes. And, and because, it's, uh, you know, because of the nature of the show, these are all breed winners. Uh, so you're, you're seeing 2,000 of the best dogs in the country. And, uh, and they, um, you have uh, three new breeds this year, um, the uh, little Hungarian uh, the Shepherd, um, the Moody, and then we have a little um, uh, Rat Terrier that is uh, brand new. And then the, uh, excuse me, the Russian Terrier, that's uh, brand new. Uh, and then um, the Bracco Italiano, which is another herder dog. Uh, so it, we have uh, three new breeds. That brings us to, um, oh, well over uh, 200 uh, breeds now that are recognized by the uh, AKC. When I came, when we started 21 years ago, we only had 160-plus dogs. And we've added uh, more than 40 dogs now to the, the um, recognition status. <clears throat> No, I, I thought I was mistaken. Uh, I thought Bracco Italiano. I thought that was the old Rosemary Clooney song. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it might have been. It might have been. It's a, it's a, it's a, beauty, it's a beautiful dog, though. Uh, no, beautiful dog. Beautiful coat on it as well. 
Uh, you and David back, I understand, too, that uh, Mary Carrillo, among other things, will have a, a wonderful feature on the Queen's favorite breed. Well, we always look forward to, to Mary's uh, wonderful, insightful uh, features that she adds to the show. It's, uh, it's really become part of the tradition of the show that it's no longer just David and I, but we, uh, we're the Three Stooges. And, uh, uh, and it's uh, a lot of fun to see what Mary comes up with. And it's always, uh, it's always fun and always pure Mary. It's always a blast for us to uh, watch the show as a family, and we like uh, posting those pictures of our dog, Ginger, uh, looking on sometimes with envy, sometimes with scorn at the dogs. Uh, will you be uh, inviting people to post their viewing photos again this year? Absolutely, and it's not just the photos. The videos we find are even more uh, <laughs> uh, enjoyable because uh, it's just so much fun to see these uh uh, to see the dogs that are actually watching the show intently. I mean, just with a beeline focus. And then it, it, one particular video that I remember is watching the dog leap off the uh, sofa and run over to the big screen television and then walk around behind it as though that's where the dogs were. <laughs> I love that. I could see, yes, I could see my dog doing that. You know, we had uh, a big uptick in people adopting pets uh, during the pandemic and when people were housebound. Uh, it sounds like you know, largely people have hung on to those dogs. But uh, as you have said in your wonderful piece, uh, the perfect dog, it may not be any specific breed. It's the dog that's the right fit for you and your family. It's exactly right. The dog that is next to you is the perfect dog. Also understand, too, that you've got a brand new product out. Can you tell us a, a little bit about O'Hurley's CBD oil for pets? It's O'Hurley's oil. Well, I'm, I'm actually the first person uh, in the world of CBD oil, which has be, uh, is, is, is a wonderful therapeutic for, uh, uh, for dogs as well as for humans as well. But we fo I'm focusing on the, uh, on, uh, the dogs because uh, the, the CBD oil, and I'm talking about the non-THC, the non-marijuana is available at HempWorks. Uh, also, you're still out uh, touring the country doing your one-man show, A Man with Standards. Uh, have you been very busy with that this year, I'm sure? I am actually, as we speak, sitting looking at a roaring fire on the Riverwalk here in San Antonio in the hotel. Um, and uh, I've been here doing uh, my show down here. I, this is my sixth, uh, my sixth appearance down here at Jazz Texas here at San Antonio. We've sold out every show, and we have another one our final show tonight, and that's uh, sold out as well. So it, the show continues to tour the country, and uh, it's just a lot of fun. I enjoy it so much, and it's uh, just the stories of my life and uh, underscored by the music of the 50s and the 60s, Sinatra, Moon River, Henry Mancini. So it's a, it's a wonderfully nostalgic show, but very funny, and uh, as I say, only one tier. 
<laughs> and now, are you getting any time to write music? Uh, you know, it's funny. My uh, my wife mentioned that the other day. She says, you know, I haven't heard you write anything new. Um, I did write a new um, uh, a new Christmas hymn um, last year uh, called The House of Christmas, which uh, is out there now on YouTube. If you punch that name up and my name, you'll see it. Um, but I, uh, I do want to go back and uh, I'm going to write a Christmas show. Uh, there seems to be a, a large uh, response for that type of uh, that type of show during the Christmas season, and that's something that I could continue to tour with as well. Well, that's wonderful. Well, uh, John, we can't wait to watch you and David and Mary and all those wonderful dogs. Thanksgiving Day, the National Dog Show presented by Purina, 12 noon. And, of course, you can get more information by going to the website as well at nationaldogshow.com. John, uh, to you and your family, a very happy Thanksgiving. Great to catch up with you once again. Dogs until 2 and then football. (laughs) That's a perfect day right there. Great to talk to you. John O'Hurley, the National Dog Show, Thanksgiving Day at 12 noon on NBC. Take a break. Our friends from Cross Insurance with a quick message. And then we're back to talk about the Hartford Whalers with author Christopher Price. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Oh, hockey fans of the 70s and 80s certainly know those putting notes of the song known as Brass Bonanza, the official theme song of the Hartford Whalers. We learn more about that and so much more in a brand new book from Christopher Price called Bleeding Green, A History of the Hartford Whalers. We talked about the book, the team, and why they continue to be so popular years after they left New England. Christopher Price here on Downtown. I love it, my friend. I love to hear that sound. <laughs> I, love, I love talking to you, too, as well. But that, that's tremendous. Love that intro. Well, I, I loved reading the book. It was such a great ride. And I, I got the distinct impression that, yes, it was a lot of work. Obviously, an incredibly well-researched book. But this had to be a labor of love for you. It really was. I had a chance to talk to almost 100 different people when it came to researching this. And it was a kick talking to everybody, but at the same time, for a kid who grew up in Connecticut, for Ron Francis and Kevin Deneen and Mike Lee and the rest of them, it, it was really special. Uh, this really, for me, was the most personal book I've ever done, uh, it, at least when you stack up you know, the ones I've done before, maybe Baseball by the Beach, because I do have such a connection to baseball in Cape Cod. But this really, for me, was a special project, and like you said, it really was a labor of love. What is it about the Whalers that that captured the hearts of so many people, not just in Connecticut, but throughout New England? Well, I think one of the important things to remember, Rich, is in Connecticut, for an awful long time, there was no singular sporting identity that belonged just to the state. It was carved up. It was, you know, the sports version of the DMZ. You're either a Red Sox fan or a Yankees fan, a Bruins fan or a Rangers fan, and then when big-time hockey came to town, it was the first time that we had a real sense of possession uh, when, when it came to to big-time sports. This was, of course, before UConn basketball became the all-consuming sporting monolith that it is now. So it was really great for those of us who live in Connecticut to or who lived in Connecticut to have some sort of big-time sports with, with some sort of possession about it. These guys were our guys. This was our team 
for the first time, and a lot of people really took him to heart. Howard Baldwin is such an important player in this story, and would would the Whalers have happened without him and, and his vision? No, no, he really wouldn't have. And I love the the comment. I think it was from a Hartford Current sports writer, Don Lamore, who, who called him really Henry Hill, you know, from the Music Man, who was just leading the parade down Asylum Street, like, look, we're going to have big-time hockey in town, and everyone's going to love it. And, you, you know, this is a guy who worked tirelessly not only to bring the WHA to Hartford, but to, to lead the charge when he came to the merger in you know, the, the late 70s. It, it, you cannot tell the story of the Hartford Whalers without a guy like Howard Baldwin. He sacrificed a, an awful lot um, you know, to, to be able to have the, the franchise survive and thrive for a time in the state of Connecticut. And Jack Kelly's approach was so unique, too. And you write about how uh, others around the league maybe raised an eyebrow when he assigned a lot of former Boston area college players, but it worked. Yeah, the way they went about team building, I thought was fascinating because the WHA all of a sudden was flush with money and all of us, you know, these these different teams were, you know, looking for big time free agents and, you know, Winnipeg went after Bobby Hall and Philadelphia went after Derek Sanderson and, you know, with the idea of luring uh, talent to the NHL, but, but he took a very steady uh, consistent path and said, look, we're going to build a championship team. We're, we're going to get good players, but we're not going to overreach. And so I think that was one of the reasons that the Whalers were so financially stable, uh, you know, it, 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 when compared to some of the other teams that you know who were in for a half a year and dropped out. And, you know, the way he went about charting that course for that franchise, at, at least from an on-ice perspective, and you compare it to, to Howard Baldwin's passion, uh, it really set the table for them to have an awful lot of success in the early going. We've seen in recent years uh, so many attempts at, at new sporting leagues, particularly in football, try and fail. And it's so interesting to note that, uh, first of all, as you point out in the book, it was a lot cheaper to get involved back in the early 70s. But <laughs> here was the WHA starting out and having success. So all while the American Basketball Association was also doing pretty well. Yeah, I love that, man. I, I love the idea, and I know it's a different world today, and there's different you know rules and regulations in place, and you know antitrust exemptions and all that. But I love the idea of just saying, let's look, let's start a league, let's pick it, <laughs> let's find ten like-minded individuals with a few bucks to them, you know, and and let's just go out and create a, a you know a rival league, you know, and the guys in the WHA and Gary Davidson and Murphy were you know were, were able to. To find those guys and to mount a real challenge at a time when the National Hockey League was a little bit vulnerable, quite frankly. They were entrenched in a lot of old school ways. And the WHA and the EBA, for that matter, had an awful lot of fun. And they were able to to reach a new audience and kind of draw in new fans. And I'm glad that both the NBA and the NHL recognized that and eventually incorporated those teams into their league. We're talking with Christopher Price about his new book, Bleeding Green, a history of the Hartford Whalers in that history began as, of course, the New England Whalers uh, trying to find a place to play, uh, battling with the Bruins over use of the garden, and then uh, the decision made to move to Hartford, and, and I feel like that that move really sealed their legacy. Yeah, it really did. There were a couple of different options for them when it was clear that they needed to get out of Boston. The, the, the Bruins gave them, you know, lousy nights. They were playing on Sunday afternoons and Monday nights and just, you know, the worst possible times, and they had a few different possibilities, including Providence, and that fell through. And you know, they were they, they looked at some other possibilities, but Hartford was just a natural fit for them for a few reasons, not the least of which, like I said before, they you know they wanted big time sports. They had just built 
the old Hartford Civic Center, and, and you know they they were able to get the corporate backing of, of places like Aetna that were you know, really financially sound. And so the move really made an awful lot of sense for them. It, it's interesting talking to people and telling them you know they, they spent a year in the Boston Garden before they ended up moving to you know the, the Hartford Civic Center. And again, you know they were the New England Whalers for an, an awful long time until they kind of narrow that focus before the move to the NHL. I love the story of how a lot of people in other venues, other cities around the country, sort of made fun of hockey in a mall, but it proved to be incredibly successful, uh, not only in marketing merchandise that's continued to be popular for all these years, but you pointed out, too, that that families felt very comfortable dropping off their youngsters uh, at the Hartford Civic Center and knowing they'd be in a safe environment and a very different one than the old Boston Garden. Exactly. Yeah. And look, I, I know it's a different era. And, you know, 30, 40 years ago, you know, things change an awful lot. But at the same time, you could drop your, your son or daughter off at the mall and say, look, you know, meet me right here after the game. And they'd be inside a kind of a contained building. They would be in the mall. They would be in a mall. And, it, you know, I remember my parents would do the same thing. They would drop me at the mall, and my friends and I would go upstairs to Wendy's, and we would get chili, and we would spend 10 bucks on tickets and sit in the nosebleeds. And, you know, it, it was a, a situation in an environment that allowed young fans to really flourish. You know, you, you look at some of the other things in addition to the fact that, you know, they, they played in a family-friendly atmosphere. You know, you look at the fact that, you know, they, they had Pucky the Whale you know, <laughs> before they had, the, you know, the, 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 you know the, the classic logo that they had. It was, you know, it was a family-friendly logo. You know, it was a family-friendly environment. You know, it was, it was a beautiful, clean building in, uh, you know, in, in, a, in, in the downtown section of a city that, you know, that was a nice place to go. So, they had a lot of they had an awful lot of things going for them when it came to marketing for for younger kids and families, and that that certainly was certainly was one of them. And we we played Brass Bonanza uh, coming into the conversation, and that's a big part of the story as well. And so many players who reflected back on on what that meant to them, how maybe a little annoyed with it at first, but what it means these days to them. Exactly. Yeah, my favorite story, Rich, was in the early 1980s when the team wasn't very good, and this was before Mark Howe was traded to uh, Philadelphia, he said that he and his sons, you know, they, they got a copy of the record and they would play sock hockey in the living room at home. And, you know, whenever someone scored a goal, they'd play the song. And he said, look, I, you know, I, I, got, I came to love the song. I heard it more at home than I did at the rink, but, you know, I came to love the song. My other favorite story with the song was Kevin Deneen was coaching a couple of years ago in Switzerland, and they were at the top of a mountain. It was in Davos or something, and you know they were in a restaurant, and there was a guy across the restaurant who had a whaler sweater, and he recognized Deneen, and you know Deneen, they kind of made eye contact, and after they were done with their meal, Deneen went over to him and you know just say hello, and the guy clearly couldn't speak a lick of English, but he started humming Brass Bonanza, <laughs> and Kevin said, you know, when you, when you have Brass Bonanza, you don't need a translator. So I, I think it's one of those things that continues to resonate with people. It's the song, it's the logo. It's certainly the nostalgic aspect of the whole thing. I think that kind of hits people in their sweet spot. But, you know, you can't discount the impact of something like that song and that logo, especially today. Uh, one of the high watermarks in the history of the Whalers was the signing of, well, all three Howes. Actually, as you point out, four Howes because Colleen Howe was crucial to getting them all to Hartford. Yeah, she really was. She was very unique. and you know, she, she was a very powerful woman in an era where, that was a rarity in the world of professional hockey, in the world of professional sports, quite frankly. But but she was in charge of, of their destiny, and I thought it was really interesting talking to Mark Howe that, look, he could have gone somewhere else when the merger happened, 
And it would have meant the end of his father's career because his father was like, look, the only reason I'm pl- not the only reason, but the major reason I'm playing at this point is because I want to play with my sons, Mark and Marty. And Mark was coveted by a number of National Hockey League teams, but the Whalers held his rights. And so the thinking was, look, we go to the NHL. Mark could very well go off to another team, but they kept him in Hartford. Gordy kept playing, and it was really fascinating to see the growth and the evolution of the Whalers as it relates to the Howe family, because the Whalers in the early days didn't really go for an awful lot of kind of bells and whistles, kind of cheap promotional gimmicks. But, you know, you could sell the fact that, look, come see Gordy Howe, come see his sons play. And that worked with an awful lot of people. I love the fact also the first year that they were in the NHL, at one point they had Gordy Howe, who was over 40, they had Dave Keon, who was over 40, Mm. the end of Bobby Hull's career. So they had Bobby Hull on the roster as well. They ended up having four guys who were in the Hockey Hall of Fame on that roster that first year in the National Hockey League. Now, it all could have gone south when the old Hartford Civic Center collapsed, and yet uh, they were able to not only uh, come back but thrive even more, uh, spend some time in Springfield. And and I thought (laughs) the incredible level of, of innovation to create something out of that, like the 91 Club. Yeah, it was great. It, 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 they, they immediately said, look, you know, we're going to move into the Springfield Civic Center, but at the same time, we're going to reward our fans. We're going to make it a point to reward our fans who have to take 91 North from Hartford up to Springfield for these games. And so they created this 91 Club, and Gordy Howe was the quote-unquote you know, president um, but you would get, you know, special, you know, special promotional stuff, and you got a special, not not a plaque, but you got a special certificate. And one of the great things was it allowed them to be able to kind of spread hockey goodwill throughout the state of Connecticut. You know, if, if they wouldn't maybe necessarily have done this before. Jordy Douglas tells a great story about how they would stop at a Wendy's back and forth between uh, Hartford and Springfield, <laughs> and you know, in their in their in their practice gear. That you know you'd be sitting at Wendy's having a frosty, and all of a sudden Gordy Howe and you know the Whalers would walk in for some lunch, and so it, it was a great way to kind of again spread some of that hockey hospitality and kind of reel people into to Hartford. But yeah, I, I think really when you talk about the collapse of the building, and I know I was trying to think, Rich, the other day that it, is there a comparable situation where you had a team, you had a community, you had fans, you had everyone working together to kind of try to make something out of an awful situation. And the only thing that I can even think of that's anywhere remotely is what New Orleans had with the Superdome. Right. And the, the way that the community in Connecticut came together, the politicians, the fans, the team, to make it work, to build the new building, really in hindsight was really remarkable. Uh, Chris, is there anybody who represented what the Whalers were all about, both on the ice and off, any better than Ron Francis? No, no, it really, really not, Rich. I, I think that when you when you talk about the Whalers again, you know, you mentioned Howard Baldwin. You can't tell the story of the Whalers without Howard Baldwin. Ron Francis was the closest thing they got to a superstar because, as I wrote, you know, write the book, that he's a guy who could you know, go to a community event in the afternoon and raise thousands of dollars for charity and then score three goals against the Bruins at night and then talk to the media afterward and always say the right thing. He always said the right thing. He always did the right thing. He was the kind of guy who you could hit your wagon to because he would never, ever disappoint you. And when they traded him to Pittsburgh in March of 1991, you that really, for me, is the pivot point for the history of the franchise because you could trace everything back to that. And it wasn't the only reason that they ended up moving six years later, but that in a series of other events led to them kind of packing up and moving to Carolina. So yeah, it, ultimately to answer your question, Ron Francis was the biggest star 
in the history of the Hartford Whalers. And, and in terms of uh, seeing them move on six years later, uh, was the biggest impact the rise of UConn basketball? Yeah, I, I think that fed into it. I, I think the fact that, you know, the NHL really didn't want uh, a team there, you know, and under the guise of saying, look, we're going to try and grow the game. And so we're going to try and you know open up some, some warm weather markets. And they identified the Whalers, I think, as a, a particularly vulnerable franchise. So they said, look, we're going to move the team there. But, you know, the rise of UConn basketball. And again, if you're an advertiser who wants to put their money with a winner, you look at UConn basketball in the early 90s and you look at the Hartford Whalers in the early 90s, you clearly see UConn basketball on the ascent. And I'm going to say, look, all right, I'm going to move my advertising money from, from Hartford Whalers hockey, you know, a team that's all of a sudden missing the playoffs, to UConn basketball, men's and women's, you know, two programs that are clearly on the rise, aiming toward national championships. So I think that goes into the conversation. That's certainly one of the conversations. Really, ultimately, they pick the worst possible time to kind of start to backslide toward mediocrity. Well, the Whale have left an incredible uh, legacy. You talk about the number of coaches and GMs who are uh, Whalers alums, but but the love of this team for the from the fans that continues today. How do you explain that enduring connection with this team? They have a stickiness with you know in, in terms of marketing that can't be beaten. You know, it, it, they, they moved twenty five years ago. And you can still go to the annual reunion that the Hartford Yard Goats minor league baseball team has every July, and 30 guys show up and thousands of people come back to get autographs and talk with these former players and reminisce. I don't know of any other former franchise. I know of individuals, but I don't know of any other former franchise that still has that collective hold on a city, on a region, like the Hartford Whalers do. Like I said, a lot of it goes back to that nostalgic aspect that guys like me loved when we were growing up. A lot of it is, you know, the cheesy song and a lot of it is the logo, but the connections that these people made, the fans, the players, it still resonates today for an awful lot of people. Howard Baldwin put it right. And, you know, when this team was at its peak, they were the Green Bay Packers of hockey. They were a small market team that had an absolutely rabid fan base that wanted to see it succeed. So many great stories in the book. I I think my favorite might be uh, uh, then Bruins coach Terry O'Reilly beating up a car. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's funny because, you know, in in the moment, in the late 80s, early 90s, you know, it it was one of the more underrated rivalries in in the sport of hockey. But, you know, it's kind of faded into obscurity a little bit. But the Whalers and the Bruins had a good rivalry for an extended period of time. And there was a game at the Hartford Civic Center where the Bruins team bust was blocked in by (laughs) by a a car or two. And and Terry O'Reilly, the Bruins had just lost, and Terry O'Reilly, of course, is not one for you know for not known for his mild manner or even temper. He went out and he attacked the car, started beating up the car with a hockey stick, and so you know he wasn't arrested, but he was charged. And it, that's just one aspect of, of what turned out to be a really good rivalry. I, I remember um, you know the, uh, one of the assistant equipment managers talking about you know putting lunches or dinners on on the you know the opposing team bus and feeling mad that the uh, you know the other team went after. Uh, you know, Ron Francis a little bit too much. So he took bites out of you know, a couple of apples that were in the bag. So, you know, there, there were little <laughs> things like that the whole way that really kind of added to what was really a, a fun rivalry. But yeah, that was one of the more memorable. Well, it, it's such a wonderful book, uh, looking back at a, a different time in the world of pro sports and an unbreakable connection between a city, a region, and a team. The book is called Bleeding Green, A History of the Hartford Whalers. Absolutely delightful book. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for talking with us today about it. 
My pleasure, Rich. Take care, and we'll talk soon. Christopher Price, his wonderful book is called Bleeding Green. Our thanks to Chris. Thanks to John O'Hurley as well, and to you for joining us this week here on the podcast. If you're not already a subscriber, we would love to have you join that that awesome club. Simple to do. Spread the word, tell your friends, leave a fine five-star review, and uh, the check's in the mail if you take care of that. Otherwise, we'll see you next time right here on Downtown.